0: So please open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now today's text is one that might prove to be a sensitive topic for many of the people in this room. The primary focus of this chapter is concerning God's will for the care of widows within the church. And before we even read the text, I want to start by getting our hearts in the right direction. I want us to think about this in the right way and show us how this passage points us to the gospel. How do these 16 verses about ministering to women help us see Christ as glorious and preeminent? Well, consider that this passage reveals to us once again the incredible love and merciful heart of God. It shows us that God loves those that the world overlooks. On a spiritual level, God took sinners like us out of a situation of ruin, and he gave us an unearned inheritance of spiritual wealth. I love how 2 Corinthians chapter. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians says in, uh, I believe it's chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, of course, this is not speaking about material wealth. It's about our spiritual inheritance, and that Jesus came to be willing to, to suffer our frailty and our neediness and our weaknesses so that he might give us his blessings. He extended himself to save someone who he had no obligation to save. And when we, as the people of God, see someone in need materially, we are imitating in a practical way, in a physical sense, what Jesus has done for us in a spiritual sense. So as we read this text in a moment and we hear the various rules and regulations about who it is that we are to support in terms of those that are widows, don't view this as some kind of a procedural, dry, legal-style document regarding policies of the early church. See this passage as the very heart of God who cares for the people who have need. See his compassion. See his affection. See his mercy as he helps the church prioritize ministry appropriately. So please follow along now as I Read aloud, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Let a widow be enrolled if she not be less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing and wisdom as we come now to his word. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that now as we come before it that you have information that you want us to know in our minds and to believe in our hearts and to live out in our actions. And God, I pray that there would be deep conviction in our hearts about the way we sometimes carelessly approach those in need. And I ask God that there would be wisdom in our hearts as we desire to generously give, that you might encourage us to know how to do so in a way that is pleasing to you and a way that is not, as Paul says, squandering the resources of the kingdom. Help us, God, to have wisdom and help us to have appropriate response to your word today, because it is our desire that your church might thrive and that your kingdom might expand. And we know, Lord, that the way that that is done best is when we are in accordance with your word. So, Lord, I pray that today that our individual hearts would be changed and that our life as a corporate body would reflect what we are reading and hearing from you this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can tell from our reading this morning, Uh, we're going to bite off a pretty big portion compared to what we're normally used to on a Sunday morning. Within this passage, there are three main sections. The first is a very short section, which describes how a pastor should relate to the various groups of people within the flock when they sin. And the second group is about qualifications for who receives practical and financial help from the church, and the final section is regarding which women, especially widows, were permitted to serve in dedicated ministry to the church, whereby they would receive financial care. Let's begin by considering the relational aspects of the pastor in this text. One of the great responsibilities of every Christian is to rebuke those who are in sin. If you are a Christian... And if you are a member of the church especially, it is your calling to watch over the lives of those around you in the church. That is not exclusively the role of the pastor. However, there are especially occasions from time to time when pastors are called to confront sin in the life of believers. But the way that a pastor communicates when this happens really matters. There are occasions when rebuke should be quick and it should be sharp. Titus chapter 1 verse 13 says, this testimony is is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith. There are occasions for that, and there are times when pastors are told to exhort and rebuke with all authority. Titus chapter 2 verse 15 says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. And sometimes a rebuke should be public. First Timothy chapter 5 verse 20, later on in the same chapter where we are today, it says, "As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of everyone so that the rest may stand in fear." However, it is interesting that the Greek word that is translated rebuke in our verse today is not the same word that is used anywhere else in the new testament for rebuke in fact this is the only time that you will ever see this word used in the bible it's an intensive verb meaning that it carries with it a harsher weight than any of the others here's how strong's concordance defines it it takes this word rebuke and it says it means to strike in a vulnerable place or to figuratively strike someone with sharp insensitive and brutal words Now, Paul is clear that Timothy should not act this way towards those in his care. Instead, he says, do not rebuke an older man like that. Instead, Timothy, help them to understand this with familial terms. Straying older man, treat him like your father. If you have uh, an affectionate heart for those younger men like you would for your younger brothers, then you will do well, Timothy. Timothy. When you are rebuking an older woman, consider her to be like your mother. Would you talk to your mom like that, Timothy? And those younger women, treat them like they're your little sister. We have no reason to believe that Timothy was a married man. It's likely, due to his travels with Paul, that he had not yet found a spouse. We know that he was a pretty new pastor at this location when Paul writes this letter. And Paul says that he should view these younger women in the church as sisters, and there's this little line tagged onto that, in all purity. So to be clear, that would be true, whether he was married or not. But I would like to take a moment to speak to the fact that there are young single people in our church, and they are going to be mostly hearing this on a recording because most of them are in New Jersey right now. However, I want us to know that the world is constantly preaching to us, especially to the single among us, about the supposed joys that are to be found in sexual fulfillment in pursuing whatever you want. The idea of chastity is scoffed at, and it seems as though every movie and every television show normalizes the idea of premarital sexual relationships. But it's not just on the screen. It's likely that every single person in this room knows people who are living with someone to whom they are not married. The people that you work with, the people in your family, many of them are probably living with someone to whom they are not married. And this kind of promiscuity in our culture can seep into the church very easily if it's not kept in check. And Paul has already spoken about being a one-woman man. Now he speaks about how men are to view other women in the church. So, of course, you are to be dedicated and committed fully to your wife, but then how do you interact with these other women who are constantly near you? They are your sisters in Christ, he says, and your mindset toward them should be that of brotherly affection. This is a simple way of Paul saying, until you're married to a woman, there are boundaries that must not be crossed. And unless a woman is your wife, she is your sister. Ladies, now I want you to know although this text is directed towards Timothy who is a man saying this to a uh, speaking about women the same context is also true in the reverse for you treat young men of the church like your brothers Now by God's grace I am thankful that this seems to be the way our church operates and I'm so thankful that there is so much brotherly love and affection that is shared in all purity. Continue on in that, grow in that, and guard yourself against any sin that could arise in that area. So now with those things in order, let's move to the next section of the text, which asks the question, which widows are eligible for financial assistance? Now it's important for us to begin by making sure that we get our definition of widow correct. We want to make sure it matches What is being said here by the text? Now, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but in English, if somebody says the word widow to me, I assume that means that there is a woman whose husband has died and left her alone. Now, although that is part of what the Greek word means, it's actually a much larger and more encompassing word. The word actually means robbed, empty, or bereft. This word for widow is often used in Greek literature to speak of women who were abandoned by their husbands, or who were divorced by their husbands, or who had never been married and in their old age are now without anything to support them. And it was also commonly used to speak of wives of Roman soldiers. Think about it, back in those days, you, you were a young woman and you get married to a man and then that man goes away to what we now call Germany or Britain or Libya. And you have no way of knowing whether he is ever going to come back. And sometimes for many years you are left in your hometown alone waiting for the resources that will come back with your husband. The government didn't pay you, they paid him. And it wasn't until he returned that you would receive anything. And there were often women in those situations who were unable to support themselves because their husbands were away without them. In those cases, the term widow is often also used in ancient literature literature to speak of them. It's also important to note that wealthy women who were left a large estate by a husband when he passed away, they were rarely referred to using this term. Even though we would use that term, we would say because their husband died, they are a widow, culturally, the people of the first century would not have used that term to speak of them. They would use other words to call them Uh, and they would speak about the fact that they are supported. Even in Scripture, we see this on occasions. For example, John Mark's mother is is a very important woman in the the early church, even though we see see very little of her very directly. Uh, Many of the most important moments in the Gospels actually occurred in her home, like the Last Supper happened in her house. When the Holy Spirit arrives at the day of Pentecost, it happens in her upper room. We see that this is an important woman. It never speaks about his father, John Mark's father, meaning he's probably dead. Instead, it speaks of John Mark's mother. But you'll notice, unlike almost everyone else in the New Testament who is now single at this point, it doesn't speak of her as a widow. It just says John Mark's mother. Why? because it seems that she was a woman of means. She had enough money to have a room upstairs in her house that could accommodate 120 visitors staying with her for days. I don't know about you, but that's kind of uncomfortable to me. I, I love hospitality, but I mean, fitting all of you guys in my, my guest bedroom might be a little bit challenging. This woman had some means, And in our world today, your house was like a mansion to most of those people. This woman had means, and therefore was not called a widow. It's important for us to understand why this word is being used and how it is being used. I share all of this important linguistic information because that's what Paul is getting at in verse 3 when he speaks of true widows. A true widow is one who is truly without any family or community support and therefore is desperate for assistance notice that there are two main purposes Paul is aiming to clarify for Timothy he is trying to establish important doctrinal rules and guidelines so that the church could afford ministering to these women first he wants to do ensure that their needs are not overlooked. He wants to make sure that if somebody is genuinely desperate, that the church will serve them. But secondly, he wants to ensure that those who are not truly in need of church assistance would be cared for elsewhere. So let's see how both of those are plainly expressed in this text. First, we see very simply that this is a big deal to Christ and also to Paul, and we can tell because the passage is so extensive. The section on widows is actually longer than the section on deacons. It's longer than the section on elders. It's substantially longer than the section on women in ministry. So why put such an emphasis on this? Well, mainly because of the common mistreatment of widows in this culture. The parable that Jesus tells of a persistent widow would have been one that resounded with many of his hearers. In Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 5, he tells a story that goes like this. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God Nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Jesus uses that parable to explain that God's judgment is coming and that his timing is perfect. However, for our purposes today, I just want you to see that Jesus chose to illustrate this story with this woman because it was common for a woman like that to have no advocate. He was like, look, this is the lady who has no help, no support. Nobody is coming to her aid. There is no one who will speak on her behalf or help her. Her only option was to go to an unjust judge and ask for assistance. And the Pharisees who were supposed to care for people in this situation are described by Jesus as those who, quote, devour widows' houses. We see that in both Mark 12 and Luke 20. One of the most basic truths of the church is that we are to care for those in the body who need help. Consider James 127. It goes so far as to say religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, without doubt, we are to care for those who are widows and orphans. And I don't think James intended for us to stop there, but he uses those two groups of people intentionally because those are the extreme examples of those who are usually unable to help themselves in that culture. And that is why verse 3 simply states, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, it's interesting because this word, honor, is used many times in the New Testament, and it usually includes a form of financial aid. For example, Jesus got on to the Pharisees when they were refusing to honor their fathers and mothers by keeping their own money and not supporting their parents. And he says, you say this is Corbin, meaning dedicated to God, so you say, well, since I already told God I would give him this money, Mom and Dad, I can't support you. And Jesus calls them out and says that you are not following the weightier measures of the law. However, it seems that the church in Ephesus was experiencing the weight of need from so many widows that were asking for a provision that they had somewhat of the opposite problem. And to their credit, it appears as though this local church was doing their very best to help those that were in need. But the second major point that Paul is making is that you are actually supporting some people that you should not be. You are actually giving of the storehouses of God to people who have other ways to receive help. Paul writes to Timothy to tell him to do something that's shocking to our modern ears, In fact, we have become so used to the idea of giving and generosity that to us this might even sound callous, but he tells Timothy that there are some of these widows that you are not to include in the distribution of food. You can see how Paul is seeking to prioritize the resource, resources of the church <clears throat> in verse 16. He says, Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So, Who are categorized as true widows? Well, there are several criteria that Paul sets forth, but before we even get to them, I want to explain why this is actually very important for us as a church. Paul is teaching Timothy that it is the role of the elders of the church to make wise distribution of the funds of the body. We need to use the resources of the church well. This is really important because there are always going to be more practical needs than there are finances to support them. They were always going to outweigh and outbalance the funds of the body. And this explanation of Paul helps us to understand certain principles about how to wisely give to those in need. So what is the criteria? Who is eligible for this practical help? Well, the first thing that is going to be noted is that they are Christians. Paul is not speaking about people outside of the church in this text. He is limiting the scope of this conversation to how things operate within the people of God. Well, how do I know that? Here's a few ways of how Paul speaks of those that he calls true widows. He says in verse 4 that they are to show godliness to their own house and be pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 5, it says that she is to set her her hope on God. And verse 8 says the man who does not provide is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. Clearly, this is to indicate that Paul is talking about people who claim to be believers and who once claimed the faith. Clearly, this is an in-house form of care that Paul is speaking about. Now, to be clear, as we move forward, I don't want you to think I am saying never to give to or support outside charity or support ministries to those who are not Christians. I am not saying that. However, what Paul is focusing on today, and therefore what I am focusing on today, is what we do within the body of Christ and within the, the family of God, those who know and who love God. Clearly, he is speaking here about those who are Christians. Consider verses 4 through 5. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God, and she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayer day and night. Clearly, we are seeing that there is a limit ...of what the church is supposed to do based upon outside ability to have support. These verses indicate that there are two necessary elements... ...for her to be considered a widow able to receive from the church. First is that she must be, quote, left all alone. That's what we were mentioning earlier. Does she have other family that can support her? Now, by being left all alone, it doesn't just mean, well, is her husband alive? Well, perhaps her husband is alive and is in a coma... It doesn't mean left all alone in the sense that there is no one present. It means there's no one present that's capable of helping them. This means that if there is any family that's able to assist, that is option number one. All the way down in verse 16, Paul adds, If any believing woman has relatives who are a widow, let her care for them. This definition of being left all alone actually helps both narrow and expand the range of who receives help in a unique way. First, it means that those who are capable of receiving care and provision from other places have no need for the church to become their provider. Now, we live in a different scenario than they did in the first century. We have a social safety net in place that they never did. And I do believe that in our society, this would include the ability for women who are able to work, and it would include the option in our modern world for those who are able to get special care from government sources. However, it's also going to widen the lens of who is able to receive help by saying that it is for those who are truly alone. That would include those who are divorced, as we mentioned before, those who have been abandoned, those who are left apart from any wealth or resources who need assistance. What about those who have a husband in prison? What about those whose husband becomes extremely handicapped due to a workplace accident? Do we not help them? Now here what we see is that those who are truly alone, that would include them. So as usual, here, you see the heart of Christ. He loves the downcast. He loves to help those in need, and he makes a way for them to be supported. Now consider this sneaky little parenthetical phrase that Paul adds in here to Second Corinthians chapter seven, five through six. He says, "For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear, uh, with, uh, fighting without and fear within." But God, and then he adds this little parenthetical phrase that I love, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. God, who comforts the downcast. What are we to do if there is a person in our church? Whatever their circumstance, whether the church is to financially support them or not, we are to comfort them. Notice, Titus is the one that comforts them, but they give the credit to God. Titus shows up, and they see that as a comfort. Well, if there is somebody in need in our church, whether we need to support them financially or we need to support them with practical needs or care, or if we need to just show them extra forms of love, that is done so that we might be God's hands and feet comforting the downcast. And by giving this simple criteria here of what it makes a true widow, Paul makes clear that we are not to be Pharisees about this. We're not supposed to be pinching pennies instead of seeking to help those in need. But he also balances that out by encouraging people Don't sap the resources of the church if there are other avenues where you can find help. Now, I believe that in our day, this would definitely include the support of the safety nets in our social system. True widows are those that need help, that are unable to get care through any other avenue. So so far, we've talked about only one half of the criteria that's required to receive this kind of care in the church. Paul also adds that there is a moral component to those who are going to receive In verses 5 and 6, he contrasts two different kinds of widows. One has their hope set on God, praying day and night, but there's another who is self-indulgent, and he says this kind of person is dead even while she lives. Now, that's an extreme contrast if I've ever seen one. But what exactly is the core difference between these two types of people? Notice it's not based upon what they have. It's based upon what they want. Those who have clear hope for the Lord and are happy in him and they see him as their treasure, they should be supported and supported without delay. But on the other hand, Paul reveals that there is a kind of woman in that scenario without a husband to help them who has only set their hope on pleasure or comfort. That is what self-indulgent means. It means that they have an insatiable desire to get whatever they want, no matter what it takes. The Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary describes this Greek word to mean someone who pursues wanton prodigality and lavish excess. Oh, you love the Puritans. Uh, this past summer, there was a, a woman who reached out to the church, and uh, people often call the church when they need help, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, there was a woman who called the church, and she said, listen, I'm in a really tough spot. We just need a little help. You see, I, I'm a widow my son has just had an operation. We're in a situation where I just don't have any income right now. I'm trying to trying to find a job, but there's really no jobs to be had. Meanwhile, I was thinking like, it seems like there's help wanted signs in every building right now. But she continued to explain to me her situation, and, and Paul had left a little bit of money behind and said it was to be donated to somebody in need, and there wasn't much left there. So I told the woman, just come by, and I'd meet her, and I'd talk with her, and, and I, I might have something that I could give to her. And when she arrived, I, I went out, and I had the the card in my hand, and I had converted it into a, a gas card and a grocery card, and I had taken it outside to her, and I, I just said, you know, I, I want to know a little bit more about you. And as we began speaking, she she seemed very disinterested. She, she was actually driving a very nice brand-new car. She had a very nice brand-new phone and very nice clothing and expensive nails and hair. And as we were talking, she seemed very disinterested just scrolling through her social media pages as we were discussing. And I asked her, have you ever been to the church here? And she said, um, no, I've driven by it a lot, though, as if that's the same. And I said, um, well, we'd love to have you come On a Sunday morning, we'd love to get to know you more and see what your needs are. If there's any way that we can help you, we would. But you need to understand our main ministry is to those who are part of the body. And we'd love to have you come and visit on a Sunday morning. She goes, yeah, we'll see. And you could just tell immediately there's not an interest in the things of God. There was an interest in comfort. There was an an, an interest in getting the things that she wanted. Now, I only tell you that story as one of many because I want you to know there are many people who fit the criteria of what Paul is saying. And sometimes those people are even within the body of Christ where they actually know Jesus, but when they experience suffering, they're not interested in growing closer to him. They really just want to feel comfortable again. That kind of attitude is what Paul is speaking about here. It's the kind of thing that is not always easy easy to spot immediately, but it does show up pretty quickly. It's the unsatiated heart that reveals an interest in only whatever earthly gain they can receive. And Paul uses the extreme analogy of saying, look, somebody who's like that, they're already dead. They're already dead. Why is that? Why is it that he can say somebody who's like this is dead while they already live? They're the original walking dead. It's because whether they're widows or not, somebody who's only interested in worldly comforts, they're never going to do anything valuable for the kingdom, and they are never going to do anything of worship to God because they're not interested in him, they are interested in self. Also, I want you to know, men, today, a lot of what I'm saying has been focused towards women. It has been focused towards widows in particularly. In particular, but men, this does not just exclude you. Zone your eyes in on verse eight. It says, "But if anyone that's both men and women, does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever." Now let's start at the end of that phrase and work backwards, because I think it's helpful to understand. What does he mean when he says that this kind of person is worse? than an unbeliever. In what way is this person worse? Well, there is a faulty understanding that pretty much derives from Dante's Inferno that there are particular sins that if you commit them, then you will end up in a lower circle or realm of hell with worse punishments forever. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. Dante's Inferno is an interesting read, but it's by no means theology. It's science fiction. And so when he says that they are worse than an unbeliever, it's not talking about punishment. No, he's talking about the fact that even unsaved people who have family members who are suffering know enough to care for them. Even your unsaved neighbor watches over his his elderly father and supports him in his old age and his need. Even somebody who doesn't know Christ knows that they need to pull out their wallet sometimes to help when a relative falls short of their financial capabilities for no fault of their own. Even an unbeliever says, when my cousin has cancer and my family can't pay for them to go through that treatment, I am going to assist them. Even an unbeliever takes care of their family. And if you, as a Christian, say that you know Christ and you refuse to help your family you're worse than they are. And in doing so, even more so, he says, somebody who is like this has denied the faith. Notice, the way your true colors are often displayed in your faith finds itself showing in the family. We've already talked about various Ministers and various forms of existence in this book, like mothers and wives and husbands and elders and deacons, they are all exhorted to display their faith in their home. And if you can't do it there, you can't do it anywhere else. We are told to treat them a particular way and shepherd them and exhort them and to teach them and provide for them. Several years ago, a young man asked me, Is it wrong for Christians? to invest their money for retirement? Don't you think it would be better if we just gave everything that we had all the time to support the mission field or to do this or to do that? And my response was something I had to think about for a moment because I, I couldn't think of a single verse that would answer that question. But my response was that I actually think it's very important for a Christian to prepare for the later stages of life. I believe that it is very important for the Christian to make wise financial decisions. Why? Because someday you are going to have to care for somebody. And when you get older and move into the winter of life, you don't want somebody else to have to support you financially. Paul speaks about not taking on burdens in the church if there is family who can care for them. That means we should be expecting and planning and preparing for the likely and almost certain eventuality that we will care for someone. We are to be wise with the money that Christ gives us so that we can plan to be generous, not just to be generous in the immediate. This includes the way that we care for our parents in the later stages of our lives, and it also includes the way that we plan for ourselves to be cared for in the later stages of our lives so the church is not burdened. If you have been wise with your savings and your investments and insurance, then you can get your house in order now so that in the case the Lord chooses to take you home earlier than expected, the rest of those in your care will be sheltered. Now, how do we try to implement this care for widows here at Gateway? Well, the simple answer is that we care for the needs of those in the church on a case-by-case basis. We do not have a program Dedicated to this because by God's grace, there are only a few in our church that meet that criteria of a true widow and by God's grace He has provided avenues of support for them so that they don't require the church to help them financially at this time But the church does seek to find ways to help in practical ways Whether it be by counsel or prayer or hands-on help or the deacons and elders going and serving we are ready to mobilize a small army if necessary to do what needs to be done in order to serve those in our care. I want to shift now to the last section of our passage today regarding widows who are to be enrolled in ministry and commit themselves to the Lord and his church. This is one of those transitions that can be really tricky if you're not careful, because you might think, as, as I did initially when I read this text, that when he says to be enrolled, he's talking about being enrolled in financial receiving Here, what he is talking about, and scholars tend to agree on, which if scholars agree, you know they're probably on the same page for a reason. He says that the reason they are being enrolled is not to receive, but to come on board as servants of the church, going out on the behalf of the kingdom and serving in a way that they do receive financially, but they're doing so because they're basically like part-time assistants of the church itself. That's what he means by enrolled. Notice that... All who are true widows, it says earlier, are to be supported. That is regardless of age. It is regardless of whether or not they become a widow when they are 19 or when they are 90. All who meet that criteria of true widow are to be cared for. But there are different criteria for those who are eligible to come alongside the church and serve officially in this capacity that are mentioned here. We read these in verses 9 through 10. It says, Let a widow be enrolled, if she not be less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now, it's likely that Paul is not requiring all eight of these criteria but we definitely see the first one is an age limit. He's saying this is the kind of person, but they must not be under the age of 60. And it's, I think it's really important because women sometimes look at 1 Timothy and they, they feel as though they are kind of second class in the church because there are prohibitions against teaching and preaching ministries that we find here in this book. But here we see that there are character qualities of women in the church who are called to strive after this kind of heart attitude, the kind of person who, like Jesus, washes the feet of the saints, who makes themselves low for the sake of helping others. And we see that there are ways that women are able to serve, that are vital to the mission of church. It never specifies what the ministry role is that they were carrying out, however. I think the scholars get it right when Paul suggests to Titus about how older women to, are to help in the church that he's also speaking about this very same thing going on here. This is a formalized role that, that Paul is saying to fill women with to meet the criteria listed above so that they can serve the younger women in the body. Look how Paul explains it in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not... Not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, work at home, kind, submissive to their husbands. That the word of God might not be reviled. How and when are they to teach these things? Well, those are some hefty topics resulting in extensive Christian education. How and when does this happen? Well, that's what Paul has in mind here for these older widows. He says, enroll them in the church. Just like in a few weeks we're bringing on Jonathan Rodriguez and later on we're bringing on Francesco LoVerde because we need the help, because we need somebody who's going to set aside official time to these ministries that we need to carry out. In a similar fashion, he says, there are occasions when you can bring on these elderly women who are in this position of life. They need the support, and you need their support. You need their help within the body of Christ. However, it seems as though there were some being given these opportunities who were younger women, and it was resulting in sin issues in the church. Let's look at them and do a quick running commentary. It says in verse 11, "...but refuse to enroll younger widows." For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they have learned to be idlers. So, well, let's back up for a second. What does it mean that they abandoned their former faith because they desire to get married? Is he saying that widows should not get remarried? Well, certainly not, because he actually is going to tell them in just a few minutes, he is going to say, actually, I encourage them to get married. So the marriage is not the problem. What is the problem? Well, it's important to understand that in, in these days, when women did go into a profession, into a role, oftentimes they were literally marrying themselves to it. They were saying, I am committing myself to this rather than the managing of a household with a husband. I am committing myself basically to not be married so that I can serve in this way. And in, in this way, Paul is saying, look, I don't want you to chain somebody up who's a young person who might have an interest or desire to be remarried. Don't do it because they're going to make a lot of commitments to you. They're going to make a lot of promises to you. And then as soon as they find somebody to marry, they're going to break those promises. And that's going to be bad for them. They're going to have to go back on their word. And you don't want them to do that. So he says, wait until they're in that later stage of life after the age of 60. Also, he says, there are problems with the maturity level of these younger widows that would come into that role. He says, besides that, they learn to be idlers. What is an idler? It's somebody who does nothing. Somebody who does nothing of value or significance or importance. They are not busying their hands with kingdom work. So what that results in is finding things to do that are not good. How many of you have ever seen that? When somebody doesn't have anything important or valuable to do, they find themselves a way to get in trouble. Here he says... They learn to be idlers. They might not be now, but believe you me, if you give them enough time, they'll figure out more ways to sin. And he says, they go about from house to house. There are different ways that people speak about this. They're not, it's not clear exactly what he's saying. It certainly is a sinful thing, but what does it mean when it says, go about from house to house? Now, there are some on the extreme end who will say, this means that they're sleeping around. I don't think that's probably what this means. But there are many scholars who say, when it says going from house to house, it's talking about dating various different guys within the community in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord. Now, that's possible. I don't think that's what it means. Rather, I think that what it means is, look, they're trying to find ways to be supported, and one of the ways that they are to be supported is with food, and instead of being able to care for themselves, they are now going from house to house taking the resources of these various families, asking for their hospitality, so instead of them helping visitors who come to the church or other people in the church who have needs, they just keep going to your home and asking you to make them dinner. Now, if you come to my house, we would love to feed you, but I can't feed you every day. This lady, she's jumping around place to place to place. She's absorbing the resources of the body in a way that is harmful to the kingdom. I think that's more what that means. It also says that they are not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Now, men say things they should not. Women say things that they should not. But in this case, particularly, what he is getting at is the sin of gossip is more pervasive if you just have nothing better to do. All you can sit around and think about is all of the drama that's going on in the church. Whether it exists or not, in your mind it begins to exist, and then in your mouth it begins to exist, and then it begins to make its way through the congregation because you can't keep it in any longer. And so he says, don't bring them into that role because I don't want them to do this. So he says, verse fourteen: I would have younger widows marry and bear children and manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander. What does it mean, slander? It means this: it means that if there are people within the church who are acting in this way, that is opposite of God's desire and God's plan, opposite of how God calls us to live, then the church will look in at uh, the world will look in at the church and say, "Those guys are just as bad as we are." Um, Right now, I'm listening to an audiobook version of Moby Dick. Uh, I actually enjoy it. I didn't think I was going to as much as I do. But it's interesting because there's a man in this book who is a a Pacific Islander who is on the whaling boat. He becomes best friends with the main character. And this man chose, it says in in the book, not to become a Christian. Why? Because he saw that the people of Nantucket were just as evil as any man he had ever known. And these people say they are Christians. That God is not a God for me because the people who worship him are just as wicked as me. How can this become slanderous to the church? When the world looks at the church and says they're just like us in their conduct, then the world has opportunity to slander. We don't want to drag the name of Jesus through the mud. Verse 15 says, For some have already strayed away after Satan. There are some people in the church who have already gone through this process whereby in their position of need, instead of going to Christ for help, they have gone the way of the world. It's safe to say that there's nothing in our local church quite like the ministry position that Paul is speaking about here. We don't have any one-to-one match for this. However, the sin issues mentioned here certainly do manifest at times. And particularly this last thing about having strayed away after Satan— Have you ever met somebody who was either single or divorced who became so desperate to find a spouse that they began to lower their standards a little bit at a time who would progressively move farther and farther away, widening the scope of who it is that they're interested in finding until eventually they end up marrying somebody who is not a professing believer at all and they themselves walk away from the church? I think that's what it means when it says some have strayed away after Satan, that they have left behind entirely what is required of them in the kingdom of God because they have found somebody that fills their passionate need in this life. Lastly, I want you to know here that Paul actually makes a caveat. Everything so far has been regarding professing Christians, but what about those outside of the church? In verse 16, it addresses that for us, saying, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. It seems that Paul is making a contrast here. Look, you've got believing women and you've got their family. Well, let her go support their unbelieving family. You need to go do that. Don't ask the church to help pick up the tab. Just jump in and do the work. And Paul reiterates that the church should only prioritize those who are truly widows without other options by saying, let the church not be burdened so it can care for those who are truly widows. So let's close out this time together with three main applications. First, God cares about widows And so should you. There are some elderly folks in our congregation who are widows in the sense of this verse. And thankfully, finances are not the primary concern. But how often do you think or write or visit or pray for people like that in this position in our church? Consider the book of Ruth. If you've been following along in the shepherding notes recently, we just went through the book of Ruth together. And what a glorious book that is. But the main characters of this book are Naomi and Ruth. And both of them are widows. And in it you see the passion that God has and the love that he has for those in that kind of position in the way that he blesses Boaz for his love and care over Ruth and Naomi. Notice also that God did not leave Hagar alone in the wilderness even when he said to Abram, you have to send her away. Well, she's a wicked woman. She's the the mother of a wicked son who would become the wicked enemies of the people of God for generations. What does God do? He provides for her when she is fearful of death in the wilderness. And God provided abundant food for Elijah during the famine and provided food for the widow of Zarephath. And one of the last things that Jesus did before he died on the cross was to ensure that his mother would be cared for by John. Remember? Jesus said, Behold, your son. And Jesus said to John, Behold, your mother. God cares for widows. How can you grow in being more faithful to love and to serve women in this position in our congregation? Is it a phone call? Is it a conversation on Sunday morning? Is it a visit? Is it a dinner invitation? Let our hearts grow to be more like Christ in the way that we see a need and care for it. Second application. Giving money is not always helpful. Americans are generous. According to the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which is a journal about philanthropy in America, Americans give a far higher percent of their paycheck to charity than any other nation. In fact, the average American gives annually more than double the percent of the next highest nation, which is New Zealand. We are a generous people. However, there are many problems that money doesn't fix. And this text reveals that money is necessary to be given to support in some instances, but there are other times when supporting people actually happens at their own detriment. Giving them finances can actually cause them spiritual harm. And you are not necessarily more loving because you give to people who ask. We are called to be both hilariously generous and deeply discerning. Those two things can go together. Now, I would tend to say that we should err on the side of generosity, but develop a habit of asking yourself whether your giving and supporting of others is actually benefiting them both in a temporal sense and in a spiritual sense. Which brings us nicely to our last application the gospel is of first importance. It's incredibly obvious from this passage that God cares deeply about widows, He cares for them. It matters to Him how they are treated, it matters how the church treats them. However, consider why Paul is being so cautious here about their treatment. He says, let the church not be burdened. Now, to be clear, we should never be afraid to take on any burden or difficulty that God gives us to carry. However, Paul's point here is that ministry to widows is a vitally important thing, but it still isn't the main thing. It's not the main mission of the church. Paul is pointing out that it is Definitely not central to all that we do. The mission of the church is still what Paul has been telling Timothy, and as we move forward, what he will continue to tell Timothy, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, so that all who hear it might be saved. Now, that is why it matters that we manage these sorts of things. Uh, there, might not be, uh, or there might be a hindrance in the effectiveness of the church if we don't prioritize the Word of God as central. Now, to that end, notice that Paul is far more concerned about the souls of these widows than he is about their practical needs. He repeatedly speaks about his concern for the church and how this does not, if it does not handle the situation wisely, and you just keep giving these people money, then it could cause them to fall into sin. And it could even cause them to reject the faith. It will lead them into possible destruction even so much to say they might even stray after Satan. Now, there are some ministries and missions that I have seen that are masterful in providing practical needs, but they don't even give the gospel. Back in the day, I used to work for the Salvation Army in Rome, and uh, there it's called the Militarezza della Salvezza. I like that better than I like the English one, but uh, in Rome, when I served there, I realized very quickly that the Salvation Army is a lot more army and a lot less salvation. It's It's very much about the practical needs and feeding people, and praise God for that. But they don't have any interests, and I don't even think anyone in that place was a Christian themselves. They don't share the gospel in any way. I also, when I was growing up, I used to help out with various ministries in Wichita, Kansas, and one of them was a food pantry and a food line that I would help at on occasion. And when I first went and they first trained me at this place, they said, listen, here's how you give the food, here's how much you give, here's what you do and what you don't do, and then you go out and you talk to the folks here that are desperate and just have a conversation with them, but listen, don't ever say anything about your faith. If you bring it up, we are going to take you out and we're going to send you home. And this is a place that has a cross on the door, and the name Christian in their title. Yet they say, don't talk about your faith. Well, if we're not doing that, what are we doing? Our ministries are to be gospel-centered. It is important that we fill someone's belly sometimes, or to give them a gas card sometimes, or to financially assist them sometimes. But in all of the support that we give, we primarily make sure that the gospel remains of first importance. Their trials are temporal but their souls are eternal. So we need to make sure that's what we care for primarily. With that in mind, let's close now in prayer. Father God, we ask that you would please help us as a church to be a kingdom-minded church that loves your Son so much that we would think nothing of giving of ourselves to help those in need. Particularly, Father, I pray that you would help us to be generous towards those who are suffering or those who are alone or those, those who need the help. But God, I also pray that you would help us to be wise in doing so, that we would be careful to guard the kingdom resources you have given us and that we would prioritize the gospel over all things. Help us, Lord, to walk that tightrope wisely so that we might serve your kingdom faithfully. And God, if there is anyone in this room with needs that I don't know about and the church does not know about, I pray, Lord, that you would give opportunity for us to meet them. And if there is anyone in the room who knows a way to serve and you are convicting their heart right now, to step out in faith and to serve and to give of their their time and their uh, opportunity and their, their resources to support someone in need. God, I pray that they would do that. And God, I ask that in all of these things, we would do what we do for the sake of your kingdom and that Jesus' name might be lifted high. We pray this all in the precious name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.